0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon. This afternoon, I am pleased to be with Chilton Varner, certainly no stranger to our listeners. Chilton, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: Great. Chilton, I think I have to give our listeners some sense of who you are, although we're all intimately familiar with you and and your good work. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to take about 60 seconds just to run through some of your background and your accomplishments. And then I want to dig right into questions, the fun stuff. Is that all right?
1: That will be fine.
0: Wonderful. Chilton Varner has 30-plus years of real experiences as a trial lawyer. She represents clients in mass tort litigation, class actions, multi-district litigation, and I suspect an array of of matters that, for one reason or another, end up on a trial trajectory. Chilton became the first female partner in King and Spalding's litigation department and is the first female to serve on the firm's management committee. We're gonna talk more about that later. Chilton is widely regarded, I mean, widely regarded by her peers throughout the American legal community and certainly the American College of Trial Lawyers. She was appointed to the Federal Civil Rules Advisory Committee by Chief Justice William Rehnquist in 2004 and reappointed by Chief Justice Roberts in 2007 where she's participated in drafting amendments governing electronic discovery and changes to the rules governing summary judgment, expert discovery, and information gathering from third parties and corporate execs. No surprise to you all, Chilton has served as lead trial and appellate counsel for a number of the country's largest pharmaceutical, medical device, and automotive manufacturers. She's a past president of the American College of Trial Lawyers for the 2012 13 activity year. Some of her accolades, which are many, include being named to the shortlist of best female litigators by the National Law Journal, Chambers and Partners, Law 360, and Benchmark. She was recently named Litigator of the Year in the Georgia, Alabama, Southeast region. No small accomplishment. She speaks regularly on an array of issues, including matters involving CLE, client development, and I think it's fair to say, and is well known as a mentor to younger lawyers. Finally, Chilton has been recognized repeatedly as one of the nation's top 250 women in litigation Chilton, I'm going to stop there because I promised our audience 60 seconds and I've probably gone a few over. Have I missed anything?
1: I think you've done admirably. <laughs> I love listening to it.
0: So I'll bet. I'll bet. Don't
1: feel like you can't stop.
0: Well, i tell you what then. I do want to follow up on one accolade. Tell us about the Termin Award. I mean, my my brief read on it is that it, it was such an honor for you to be the recipient of the Termin Award.
1: I have done a lot of work with Emory University here in Atlanta. And I served on their board for, I think it was 18 years. And I remain on that board now as a trustee emeritus. And I've been active in Emory Law School, which is where I earned my JD. And I had served as president of the Dean's Advisory Board, the president of Emory Law Alumni. And the Terminal Award um, rewards folks who have been very active in Emory Alumni activities. And for having done that, you get a beautiful crystal cow. A cow? <laughs> which was Something that Mr. Terman loved. So I now have a crystal cow on my bookshelf.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, you'll have to take a shot of that crystal cow and send it to me. I suspect I've never seen a crystal cow. So.
1: They are a rarity. No question about it.
0: Yeah. Now, Chilton, I understand that you are from Opelika. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You Opelika. pronounced
1: it perfectly.
0: All right. I'm a Southern boy myself. Opelika, Alabama. What was Opelika like for a young children?
1: I grew up in Opelika. My parents had been married there and lived there their whole marriage. And I had grandparents who also had lived their lives in Opelika. It was a small town. I don't think it ever got above 15,000 people. I think now maybe it's bigger, but not by much. It's in East Alabama. Opalika was named after the Indian tribe that occupied that part of the United States at the beginning. It was a sleepy town. I had the great advantage of having a father who had postponed getting married for the first time until he was 50 years old. And that meant that he had all the time in the world for me. And it was uh, important to me personally, but you wouldn't believe how much usefulness I got from tagging around with my dad who was talking to almost all males who were 50 and 60 years old when I started practicing law as an associate. All the power brokers were males who were 50 or 60 years old. So I had the advantage of having at least been exposed of how to behave and how to charm males who were in their 50s and 60s. Hmm. Of course, at the beginning, I grew up in a segregated South, and the changes in this part of the country have been truly cosmic. So it is so much different today from the small town, not unlike the small town in To Kill a Mockingbird where I grew up.
0: So would people close to you have described young Chilton as uh, a young woman with an old soul?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by old soul, but I certainly had spent a lot of my time with people who were older than I was.
0: Right. So uh, we know that you left Opelika for college. Did you see that on your horizon? frankly, did you expect to leave your hometown?
1: I think I probably did, but I never had until later any idea of going as far afield as I ended up. When I left for freshman year in college, I had never been north of Washington, D.C. and hadn't spent much time there, but I was persuaded by my dad, whom I loved to pieces. My dad was of the opinion that for a young woman, the Eastern women's colleges would provide the best education that they could find anywhere. This was prior to the demise of single-sex colleges. Princeton was still all-male. Smith College, where I went, was all-female. And it was a real stretch for me. I had graduated from Opelika High School, and the majority of people at the time who attended Smith had gone to private finishing schools and private educational schools. I think I may have been the first student at Smith who was from Alabama. Oh there was nobody that had a draw like mine. And my preparation for a rigorous scholarly Endeavor. I was a duck out of water.
0: Now, somewhere along the way, you met the love of your life, Morgan, a Princetonian. Is
1: that right? I did. We had a common friend in Opelika who was somewhat of a matchmaker. She thought that if a boy from Union Springs, Alabama, population 3,000, made it to Princeton, that a girl from Opelika who got accepted by smith and so she introduced the two of us and the rest is history
0: wow what a neat story i mean that's kind of the uh the dream outcome for matchmaking right i think so and she was very proud of her success wow So you come back south to Emory for law school, but there was a detour along the way. My understanding is you did not go straight through college to law school. Is that right?
1: Absolutely not. I got married instead to Morgan. We were married two weeks after I graduated from Smith. I then had a very interesting educational change to being eventually an Army wife. Morgan had two years left of law school when we got married. I got a job working in one of the offices at Duke. He was at Duke Law School. And I I had a nighttime job of typing up the research memoranda that Morgan and his classmates were popping out. Learned a good bit about the law by typing at night the papers of Morgan and his classmates. And then after he finished his degree at Duke Law, He had an ROTC commitment to be fulfilled. He had been in ROTC at Princeton. And we spent the majority of his time in Germany, living in Germany, where our daughter Ashley was born. So I had two years of being an Army wife, but I learned a whole lot about Germany and about the military.
0: So am I hearing this correctly, that the time you spent working with Morgan, supporting Morgan, probably lit your spark for the practice of law.
1: Well, not immediately, but it sure helped. After we returned to the United States and Morgan was working as a lawyer, I continued to be a sounding board for Morgan, who was a young practicing lawyer. And he would run things by me to get my my reaction. And eventually he started his He hung out a shingle and started his own firm. And I was the bookkeeper, the typist. And I decided I liked his side of the desk better than I liked mine. And that was when, once our daughter was old enough to be in school through lunch, I applied to Emory Law School, which at the time was the only law school in Atlanta.
0: Wow. So I'm going to move on. I know our listeners want to hear more about your legal career. Let me start with something that I encounter, and I know people at your level encounter frequently. Folks assume that all successful lawyers want to be judges, and many successful lawyers will confide that they had, they've considered the bench. Have you ever given any thought to it? And if so, why didn't you pursue it?
1: Well, it was pretty easy why I didn't, uh, because I didn't get appointed. I had one ballet with leaving the practice of law to become a judge. But I wanted to be a federal judge because I couldn't bear the thought of having to campaign every six years to be reelected as a state court judge. Our state court judges are elected in Georgia. I put my hat in the ring. And we had some good relationships as a law firm with Senator Sam Nunn from Georgia and I later learned that I ended up as one of two finalists for the federal district court vacancy. Unfortunately, the other of the two was a sitting state court judge who had been the roommate of Senator Nunn in college. And so he got the nod. It was requested of me that I put my hat in the ring for the next vacancy. And the outlook was promising. Well, by the time the next vacancy occurred, I had started another phase of my trial work at King and Spaulding. I had several new clients and several opportunities to try cases and decided that I was eager to continue to do that. That trial work was well suited to my particular set of skills and one thing else that i probably should mention the federal judges and particularly those in here in atlanta are all very very loyal to avoiding any indication of bias or improper behavior that's a good goal but it makes for a very insular existence. And another thing that I loved about my law firm practice was that we were all friends. My best friends were my partners. And I was reluctant to leave that for what is a very, can be isolated and insular position. So I put aside right then the notion that I might leave the practice to be a judge.
0: Understand. So our listeners have a sense of your client portfolio, suffice it to say some of the largest corporations in the country. When you came out of school, Chilton, did you envision a practice that would include clients of that size?
1: When I decided to go to law school, I talked with my husband, a lawyer, about it and what I would ultimately do. And my original intent was that Morgan continued to grow his firm, and he would take care of the financial side, and I would be free to take a public service job, work in pro bono cases. As I finished law school, I had changed my mind. I had an excellent summer clerkship with King and Spaulding. I loved the firm they treated me exceedingly well. And I had changed my mind that instead of working in a small pro bono practice, I really enjoyed the camaraderie, the teaching and the collegiality of practice in a large law firm. I took the summer clerkship and I knew immediately that if they would make me an offer, I was gonna join King & Spaulding. Got it. And I was off and running. They gave me every opportunity for the largest clients in the firm, and they taught me what to do about it.
0: If you don't mind me asking, what year would that have been that you had the nice experience as a summer associate?
1: I started a permanent position at King & in 1976.
0: So I have to ask, I don't imagine there were many women practicing at King and Spaulding in 1976, but maybe that's an inaccurate assumption. But if that is accurate or fair, did you expect to have such a welcoming experience? How about that?
1: After the summer clerkship, I did. I loved what I did that summer, and I loved the people who taught me how to do it. And I had two important mentors, both of whom were past presidents, of the American College of Trial Lawyers, former Attorney General Griffin Bell under President Carter, and Frank Jones, who was known as the best trial lawyer in the state of Georgia. I worked with both of those senior partners, and they gave me every opportunity I could have asked for.
0: I imagine that when you are at law schools or even undergrad campuses, you are frequently asked for guidance on how young emerging lawyers should go about shaping their trajectories, if that makes any sense. What advice do you give them?
1: They need to find something that they like to do. If you don't like what you are doing as a lawyer, it can be really disheartening because you have to work very hard and very long, and it ought to be it's something that you enjoy. I think The difference between trial practice and transactional practice is quite different. The skill sets are not the same. And I had decided early on that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I have a competitive streak. I played tournament tennis when I was growing up and I've always enjoyed being on my feet. So for me, being a trial lawyer, was important, and then once I got there, I loved it, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, including being a federal judge.
0: I'm dying to know, how soon, how early in your practice did you recognize your desire and your capacity to be a trial lawyer?
1: I would say that from the beginning, that is what I wanted. I think from the time that of my first year in law school, when I participated in a, in a required moot court, I decided that I liked the adversary nature of being a trial lawyer, the attention to detail of being a trial lawyer, being organized, which you have to be as a trial lawyer. So from the beginning, that's what I wanted. I've also talked to people, young people, about how do you get trial experience in a world where jury trials are shrinking. Mm -hmm. And I think what you need to do is you find the best trial lawyer who is already successful. You go and talk to that trial lawyer and you make it clear that if there would be an opportunity to work with that trial lawyer, you would be honored to be considered. That's what I did. And it was a successful effort on my part. And I think you have to have somebody who will be your booster. Because particularly corporate clients who have a large in-house counsel cadre, they are very, very careful not to unleash somebody who is inexperienced and not very effective. So you need to have, I think, a mentor.
0: Let's follow up on that. You obviously spend a lot of time dealing with with in-house counsel. What, What are some of the challenges of representing large clients?
1: Number one, you have certain constraints that a plaintiff's trial lawyer would not have. Certainly, you are being judged by the client who inevitably is an in-house lawyer. The plaintiff's lawyer does not have that sort of blanket of review. But I think you need to establish an effective relationship, just one lawyer with another, in order to move forward. Another thing about defending a large corporation is that you have to keep in mind that yours is not the only case where that product may be being challenged. So you have to be thoroughly consistent with the position taken by the defendant. And finally, I think you have to to work harder and be better. When your clients are large corporations, because jury research has made it crystal clear that most jurors, when they arrive in the jury box, are, if not biased, they think that the corporation probably did what they were accused of doing. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case at all. But I do think you have to be, if if that's where you draw your clients from, you have to work harder and be better in order to win.
0: How do you manage large clients' expectations about the outcome of a case? And then how do you manage those same clients who have very strong feelings about the way they think you should try the case?
1: Well, usually it ends up at a draw. I will end up trying the case but giving some of my colleagues who were younger, trial experience during the trial. I also make it a point to have a very candid sit-down with the client where I identify what is going to be working on our side and what is going to be working on the other side so that they are fully informed all the while remaining faithful to that client and identifying where some additional work is going to be needed, and perhaps some more tutorials that the client can give the lawyers. Some of my most rewarding experiences have been being taught by an engineer or a doctor about highly technical matters so that I know them backwards and forwards, and I won't make a false slip. Mm -hmm. And I try to make sure that my younger people have gotten on their feet during the trial. And that's all prefaced with the client.
0: I see. Chilton, you've been quoted as saying that every trial is a teachable moment. Is that what you meant by the prior answer or did you mean something different?
1: I would say that a really fine trial lawyer has to be a great teacher. The jurors are pulled in off the street or away from their job to listen to, digest materials that the lawyers have been working on for two years. And they have to make that connection in a two week trial or a three week trial. I do believe that you have to like teaching and you have to understand teaching to be a a great trial lawyer, because that's what you need to do in order to win.
0: Sure. Some have described your style in cross-examination as much more conversational than confrontational. Would you agree with that?
1: I think so. Well,
0: what's the secret to that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll start with part of why I do it. I'm really not built very well to be intimidating. I'm five foot three. I'm female, and I'm from the South with a Southern draw.
0: I don't know. I've known some pretty scary short women in my day, children. So... <laughs> But go ahead.
1: (laughs) But it's hardly intimidating in the first instance, I have to say. But I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. I had a case in Kentucky, automotive product liability case, which was a very dangerous case where a Cadillac had run off the road and burst into flame. The plaintiffs had engaged a former engineer for the automaker who had produced the subject vehicle. I had put that expert on the stand in three other cases when he was still employed by the automaker. And my strategy with him was not to try to intimidate him. He knew me. He had liked me. We had worked together. He had been one of my great teachers in tutorials, as I mentioned. And I approached him just the way I would have approached him were he still my expert and not the plaintiff. And I have to say it worked. He fell right back into the rhythm that we had had when I was his interrogator and his lawyer. And I just think my own demeanor is better suited to conversational than it is combativeness. Mm-hmm. And again, that's just my style. I know there are others who would rather be more intimidating and combative. That's just not me.
0: I'm curious about this, Chilton. Do you think there is a diminishing return to exhibition of personality in a trial? In other words, can the lawyer to the client's detriment become the focus at trial?
1: I think there are lawyers who are prima donnas,
0: well put. there
1: are lawyers who have a large ego, but I, I personally don't think it helps if you're more interested in your appearance and whether or not the jury understands what a talented person you are, if you will just focus on the jury and how do you teach them honestly and ethically about the product, in my case, uh, the product design is, I just, I am repelled, quite frankly, by grandstanding.
0: Do you think jurors expect some amount of show, though? Some degree of performance? Some amount of theater?
1: I think that certainly the amount of TV and movies that deal with trials may have produced an expectation that will be a lot of fireworks. Sure. But I also think, and I had a clerk for a federal judge in Atlanta tell me this once, that her view was that lawyers did not help themselves by grandstanding, and that what the jury was doing following the charge, the preliminary charge from the court, they are trying to find out the truth. What happened here? And why did it happen? And they are not particularly interested in some dramatic grandstanding.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard it said, and, and frankly, I agree that all litigators are not trial lawyers. If you agree with that, share with our audience your perspective on the difference between a litigator and a trial lawyer and just continue with the difference between a good trial lawyer and an excellent trial lawyer.
1: Okay. I would tell you that all litigators are not trial lawyers and it's it's something that we confront in the American College of Trial Lawyers. Hmm. We spend an inordinate amount of time struggling to find the best trial lawyers, not the best litigators, not the best settlement lawyers, not the best mediators. We are looking for trial lawyers.
0: What distinguishes an exceptional trial lawyer from a perfectly competent, good trial lawyer? What makes one a standout among his or her peers?
1: I think a fearless trial lawyer is somebody that I would want to hire, somebody who was a fine teacher, someone who keeps thinking about the jurors, what they are making of this whole strange procedure And what do they need to know in order to make the correct decision at the end of the day? I think a great trial lawyer is that trial lawyer who is not afraid to lay it all out there. Yeah. And I worry, Mike, that the shrinking number of jury trials is producing, in part, a generation of judges who perhaps didn't have the most robust trial record when they were in practice, and that bothers me as well.
0: All right. Well, let's go there, Chilton. What is it about a judge that causes, allows, uh, leads to him, her, they being an asset to the trial versus a liability to the trial? If you get my point, some judges are good at presiding over and conducting proceedings, and then frankly, some just make it a mess.
1: I've had both. And I bet you have too.
0: Uh They shall remain nameless, right?
1: That they shall remain nameless. But I'll tell you that, go back for a moment to the term teachable. I think when you have an uncertain judge, timid judge, that you have to do some more teaching for that judge and make that your pupil as well as the jurors. And you have to do the best you can, and you just have to muddle through And you keep trying to improve the landscape, but there have been cases where you know from the time that the trial begins that you are in trouble and the case is headed south, not because your client did something wrong, but because the judge is uninformed and uncertain.
0: Chilton, a second ago, you spoke about fearlessness, and I imagine with that fearlessness is the willingness, nobody wants to lose, but you have to accept it as a possibility and you can't be afraid to lose, right? In other words, that's correct. So how do you deal with the sting of loss, (laughs) Jilton?
1: Very poorly, I would have to say. I don't enjoy it, but you can always learn something from defeat, I think. And it means you've got to get better at whatever that is. My last trial was in Los Angeles and it was in federal court. It was a class action where the court had certified the class and had refused to decertify when we moved once the trial started to decertify the class. And the case did not end up well for my client, our client. But we managed to get it turned around altogether on appeal in the Ninth Circuit, which is not common. The appellate court decertified the class and held for the defendant on every count. So the plaintiff left the arena with nothing to show for it, although it took an appeal to get there. But there are always things you can do to try to mitigate loss. And one of them, I think, is you have to try to keep your team, your young people, the associates who may be doing research back in the trial war room. You've got to continue their enthusiasm for this as a way to earn a living. And I think that's a fiduciary duty of the lead lawyer is to keep his or her team upbeat, leaning forward.
0: What are some of your non-work interests?
1: I sang in the Atlanta Symphony Chorus for almost 10 years. I had to quit because of travel to far-flung trials, but I love the symphony, and I'm still active on their board, and I loved the singing. Robert Shaw was the greatest choral conductor ever, and he came to Atlanta not too long after Morgan and I, my husband and I, moved here after, after the Army, and it was just a wonderful thing to do. I'm an avid reader. I always have two, one for the car, where I listen, and one to be read.
0: What do you like to read?
1: Just about everything. I read novels. I read nonfiction just about everything. I read about finance. I read about World War II history. The world is filled with great books and you learn a lot that you carry in your head. And one day it'll be very helpful when you're trying to make a point in a closing argument. So I also have a lot of extracurricular, I call them, things that I do. The American College, I still have a strong involvement there as a president. And I'm currently the president of the Supreme Court Historical Society, which is a wonderful way to get time to be spent in the courtroom and with the justices. So I stay busy. I wouldn't trade any of that.
0: Let's go to the point you made about the college. And I understand that we are talking to our brothers and sisters in the college. How do you think the college has changed for better or for worse in the last five to 10 years?
1: Well, I think it is more diverse. The college has had a planned program to improve its diversity and inclusion. And I think it is succeeding. The numbers suggest that it is succeeding. We have a ways to go, but the effort is being made. The help is being found. And we are digging deeper in order not to change our insistence that the people who are going to be inducted are the best trial lawyers in the country. We have to look a little longer and a little further to get that sometimes simply because trial experience is difficult for some people to get. It's why I think it's so important that if you are a young lawyer and you want to be successful in the courtroom. You need to find yourself a mentor and tell him or her that you will do whatever you can do in order to become a great trial lawyer.
0: Let's go back to a point from your introduction that you were King and Spaulding's first female litigation partner in 1983 and member of the management committee in 95. Certainly a defining moment for the firm in terms of diversity. Do you think that diversity has value beyond marketing metrics? Do you think it's something that firms should be vigilant about?
1: Certainly for trial lawyers, there is a very obvious need for diversity because your juries are going to be diverse. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I just think it's compelling for trial lawyers to be in favor of diversity. And I think most are now, but we've still got a way to go. And part of that is I think we need to be careful in law firms that once we hire a diverse lawyer, that we've done what we're supposed to do. I think we need to be careful to continue to shepherd those people into being part of the leadership of the firm, because I think. It will make the whole diversity campaign easier if you have diverse people in various leadership positions in the farm.
0: I wanna stay here for a second and ask you a question that I've wondered for years. Do you think jurors pay attention to the race, the ethnicity of the lawyers? Do you think jurors see color and ethnicity and race in lawyers?
1: Well, I'll start by saying I have tried cases with African-American co-counsel and members of my own team, and I don't think so unless you happen to have ended up with a juror that you should have stricken. Mm -hmm. I have not had the experience that it is a determinative concern of the jurors. They've been told by the court what they need to do and that they are after justice and truth. And I think they try extremely hard. it's one reason that I hate that we're having fewer jury trials. It's one of the last ways that a citizen can change things in a great big country. And I think they try seriously hard to fulfill their mission.
0: Wow, well, Chilton, I wanna thank you for your time. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I haven't seen you for years and certainly the last two, we can blame it on the pandemic, but I look forward to seeing you at the next college event. And on behalf of the college podcast series, I wanna thank you so much for your time and wish you a good weekend.
1: Well, you've been a charming host and I appreciate it, Mike.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.